0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 69. You can never have enough space missions. So, here at Cheap Astronomy, we do cosmology, black holes, we dabble with quantum physics and often poke fun at dark energy. But sometimes, it's hard to beat a good old-fashioned space mission. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Please tell us more about Dragonfly. Here at Cheap Astronomy, when we heard some murmurs in the background that NASA was launching a new mission to a gas giant moon, we instantly thought, woohoo, all aboard for the Europa Clipper. And then we read the memo properly, and, oh, right, it's not the clipper, and it's not Europa. We're actually going to Titan again. But to be brutally honest, the proposed Europa clipper is unlikely to achieve more than just further determining the potential habitability of Europa, which is kind of useful information, but at the same time, meh. In fact, the whole Back to Titan Dragonfly mission is kind of nifty. It involves landing a rotocopter, which will fly around on the only moon in the solar system we know to have a dense atmosphere that would allow you to fly around in a rotocopter. It's unlikely we'll discover life on Titan, but it's unlikely the Europa Clipper will discover life on Europa either, even though there might really be life on Europa under 20 kilometres of ice. So really, Dragonfly is a decision to do what we can with 21st century technology, and even with just 21st century technology, we can fly a rotocopter around the distant moon of Saturn. How is that not awesome? The physics of flying on Titan are pretty straightforward, since it has four times the density of Earth's atmosphere, and just a seventh of Earth's gravity. The real engineering challenges are 1. It's minus 160 degrees Celsius on Titan, and it may snow hydrocarbons. 2. Titan is over one light hour from Earth, so the copter will have to fly and navigate largely autonomously. And 3. There's no point doing all this if you don't have a way to send data back to Earth, and that data just has to include a few visuals of our little machine flying around on a freaking moon of Saturn. It's expected the rotocopter will deal with the cold because it's nuclear-powered by an RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which will not only produce electrical power, but also warmth. The RTG doesn't have enough electrical output to run the rotors directly, Instead, it will steadily charge up onboard batteries that have much higher wattage output. So the idea is the Copter will fly during the Titan day, which is about 8 Earth days long, and recharge during the Titan night, another 8 Earth days. The final specs of the Copter are yet to be worked out, but since it will be carrying its own RTG, all the flight machinery and scientific instruments, including sample collection devices, all adds up to a whopping 450 kilograms. So it is a lot of mass, even if it's not a lot of weight to lift against Titan's gravity. The rotocopter design will have four pairs of rotors, each about a metre in diameter. Two pairs are on either side of the rotocopter's rectangular body, which should give it a lot of flight stability and the mass of the craft itself should add to that stability, even if it won't be all that manoeuvrable. It is expected it will be able to fly forward in a straight line at up to 36 kilometres an hour and be able to rise up to 4 kilometres altitude. The rotocopter will have its own communication dish, allowing it to transmit and receive data directly with Earth. Similar to our Moon, Titan is tidally locked on Saturn, with the same side facing Saturn all the time. So Titan's full day-night cycle of 15 days and 22 hours is entirely about its orbit around Saturn. So its opportunities to communicate with Earth will be mostly in Titan's daytimes, when the part of the Moon that it's on is also facing the Sun. And the part of the moon that it will be on is called Shangri-La, a huge expanse of hydrocarbon dunes, which is more or less where the Huygens probe landed back in 2005. And when does dragonfly happen? Well, everything we've talked about will happen in 2034, although that follows a launch from Earth in 2026. So the boffins only have about seven years to get the thing built, and launched. This is the middle bit. Of course, timeframes that many years in the future are pretty much pie-in-the-sky stuff, but the Dragonfly mission does seem compellingly feasible, scientifically valuable, and just plain awesome. So it has got a good chance of really taking off. Small astronomy joke there. And now to look at some technology from our existing missions. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Why don't we fly microscopes to Mars to look for life? Early microscopy was revolutionary insofar as you could take a drop of pond water and, under magnification, find lots of little swimmy things that no one had realised were there before. So, of course, wouldn't it be great if we could do the same thing on Mars? The first problem with that idea is that free liquid water can't persist in Mars's very low atmospheric pressure. Sure, you can still look at dry samples, but dry samples won't automatically spread out flat on a microscope slide. It's quite difficult to look at chunky three-dimensional objects under high magnification since the higher the magnification, the less depth of field you have. So with anything that has chunky ridges, you have to focus on the top of the ridge, and then adjust the focus to look at the bottom of the ridge. And even if you have the patience to keep on adjusting the focus, you have other optical issues to deal with, since a 3D structure will be reflecting light from lots of different angles and directions, so you get problems with glare And diffraction. So to do really powerful optical microscopy you need to prepare thin sections that are flat enough to be virtually two-dimensional. And there's a further problem with high magnification where having the lens right up close to the sample means the lens is shadowing the sample so it'll be too dark to see anything. So not only do your thin sections need to be almost two-dimensional They also need to be almost transparent so you can shine light through them from beneath. And there's yet another issue. With most biological samples we know about here on Earth, once you've prepared a thin section, the material you're looking at is so transparent it's hard to differentiate cells, let alone the different parts of cells. This is where staining comes in which is pretty much a science in its own right. There's different stains for starches, proteins, cell membranes, cell walls, nuclei, and chromosomes, just for example. These stains create contrast between different structures with different chemical compositions, so you can see everything that you want to see. In fact, you can use staining to work out what the chemical composition of things are. Most of the useful microscopic stains we have at our disposal were found through trial and error, so with a whole different biology that might exist on Mars, you'd have to pretty much start from scratch. Of course, there's also electron microscopes, but they also need some very intricate sample preparation. Transmission electron microscopes look at thin sections that electrons can pass through ...and these are stained with heavy metals to create contrast. There are also scanning electron microscopes... ...which can magnify 3D structures by scanning their surface to build up a composite image. Those 3D samples have to be coated with an electrically conductive covering... ...and they have to be earthed... ...since you are firing charged electrons at a sample that's sitting in a vacuum... ...which is going to build up a big electrostatic charge... If it's not Earth properly. Gold, for example, is an excellent coating for scanning samples. Anyhow, if you want to do microscopy on Mars, getting the microscopes to Mars isn't the biggest problem. Preparing samples for microscopic observation is the problem, and it's a doozy. Robotic solutions would be a stretch for our current technologies, so it's probably easier to send people there to set up a lab Not that there's anything about that that's easy. The alternative, of course, is to do sample return missions so we can look at samples under a microscope back here on Earth. This is almost certainly what we will end up doing and the upcoming Mars 2020 rover will be putting together samples for a future sample return mission, perhaps in the 2030s we have sent some pretty impressive magnifying glasses to Mars, including the current Mars hands lens imager, Marley, on the Curiosity rover. It's hardly a microscope, but Marley can fully resolve things that are smaller than the width of a human hair, and more importantly, take pictures of them that can be sent back to Earth. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Thinking about why we can't do something often provides insight into what else we can do, which is the basic formula for all existing space missions. We do what we can do. So, with no warp drive or transporters, and a dearth of destinations with a breathable atmosphere and 1G of gravity, we rely on our robots, not to mention a lot of clever science and engineering, to check out the neighbourhood. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to launch a new idea, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us put it under the microscope for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.